What do you do when you when you change how the world thinks of cinema? What's next? I mean, uh, um, do you keep making the same kind of film? Or if you're a person like Rossellini, uh, uh, which few are, uh, you try something experimental. Welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer, and yes, it's been a very, very, very long time since we've posted an episode. Almost, I think it's close to 18 months now, but we're back. Oh, we're going to change up a little bit uh, for this season. We're actually going to be talking filmmakers uh, for an extended period of time. I think the whole season is going to be um, filmmaker-based rather than film-based. So you're going to get at least one or two episodes just depending on how much uh, me and co-hosts talk and blab about the filmmakers. So as you can probably already tell from the show notes, we're actually talking about Martin Scorsese. Why? Because this week as it's as our podcast is being dropped, uh, the titan of movie directing is releasing his newest film, The Irishman. And so to talk about all things Scorsese, um, I'm joined by uh, a former co-host uh, from many, many different podcasts that we've we've done, um, the associate editor of The Movie Isle, Scott Phillips. Scott, how are you doing today, sir? I'm good, man. Welcome back to the podcasting world. Seriously, welcome back to the podcasting world, too. Um, it's yeah, been a while. it's been, been too long. <laughs> Exactly, and I mean, what a topic to start with with Martin Scorsese as our uh, as like the premiere episode or episodes. I have a feeling that this is going to be divided into two because we'll have a lot to say. Um, so um, let's go ahead and uh, you know, for those that don't know, uh, don't know you, Scott. Why don't you just kind of give a little brief rundown where people can find you, so that at the top of the episode, if they want to, they can just go ahead and go right onto that Twitter and and find you there. Yeah, absolutely. I am a uh, film critic based in the state of Georgia. Uh, obviously, I write for uh, the Movie Isle and have written for the Movie Isle since its beginning. Uh, and I have recently started a project with a local CBS television affiliate. Uh, and I do video film reviews. Uh, the archives of my reviews can be found at WRBL.com. That's the name of the station. Uh, and the name of the show is The Screen Scene. So if you were to go to WRBL.com and search Screen Scene, you will find all of my archived reviews. Uh, so a guy who uh, has a face made for radio uh, is now doing television. <laughs> Dude, you can't be that self-deprecating on the show. I can't fucking be laughing, man. Um, so uh, you can always reach us on the pod um, on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is the B Movie Pod or B Movie Pod. The letter B, uh, the word Pod. Uh, yeah, B Movie Pod. Yeah, uh, B. Uh, the letter B, the word Movie, the word Pod. All together, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Just. B Movie Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, 
The Twitter is Tyrufus underscore McCoy, T-Y-R-U-F-U-S underscore M-C-C-O-Y. And then you also can find where we host the show, uh, the site that Scott was talking to you about, The Movie Isle. Uh, The Movie Isle's Twitter and Instagram handle is The Movie Isle. uh, all together and no lines no dashes no bullshit the the movie aisle uh so you can find and, us uh, there sorry and i forgot uh in the world of uh, social media here that if you want to find me on twitter uh it is m scott underscore phillips uh so i'm at m scott underscore phillips my full name is actually michael scott phillips but I can't exactly go by Michael Phillips since there is a very esteemed film critic for the Chicago newspapers uh, named Michael Phillips. And so luckily I go by my middle name. So that solves the problem anyway. Absolutely. And so with all the social media-ness all out the uh, out there in the universe, we're going to go ahead and actually deep uh, just get right into our discussion with Scorsese. Now, it's going to work a little bit differently than it has before on the B-Movie pod. The B-Movie pods, uh, like, is structured, but it's a little bit more freewheeling, you know, a little bit punk rock, a little fuck you to the podcasting world. But this is going to be a little bit more structured when we're talking about filmmakers to maximize our usage of time uh, and discussion. So the first topic that we're actually going to bring, uh, we're going to talk about, is something that's been on uh, film Twitter for quite some time now, much to my annoyance, which is Martin Martin Scorsese versus the MCU. Now, of course, there are more people that, like, it's really unfortunate to me that there there are more people that know about the MCU than know about Martin Scorsese. Like, that is a sad, sad state of affairs on film Twitter. But uh, we're talking about a certain avenue of film Twitter who just blew up when Scorsese, in an interview, in a very long interview, gave a very gave a beautiful dissection of the reason why those movies weren't for him. And my opinion, and I'm going to let Scott talk for a little bit, is is that I think that so many people just see the headlines and don't read the interview and just lose their shit over things that they really shouldn't be losing their shit over. Um, and I mean, like, I, I mean, there's a more of an articulate <laughs> discussion point for me on this, but I wanted to, I wanted to hand this over to Scott to talk a little bit more about this because I mean, to me, it's, it's just outright stupid. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you're exactly right in the sense of, you know, used to our attention spans, uh, were such that people would read, you know, 750, a thousand words on a, on a news story. Uh, and actually get all of the nuances and all of the details. And uh, these days, that just doesn't happen. And so what you've got is these people out there who troll video interviews, uh, troll interviews in written publications, and they go in and pluck like a sentence out. Uh, Maybe it's in context, maybe it's out of context, and they slap it up there as the headline uh, to generate clicks. And so it's it's really, in my opinion, shoddy journalism. Uh, it's not balanced or anything like that. It's just trying to come up with kind of the most explosive inflammatory take uh, that you could possibly make out of what that person had to say. Uh, and then that becomes news. And so it turned into essentially Martin Scorsese says Marvel movies suck. And uh, and so everybody lost their minds and and ran with it. 
Absolutely. And so for people that don't understand and who have not read the quote that was in Empire magazine and in the article, it's this. I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them as well made as they are with actors doing the best that they can under the circumstances is theme parks. It isn't cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, like, that's not Martin Scorsese saying that the MCU sucks. It's just basically him very, very, very nicely dissecting exactly what he finds is the problem there. And to be quite honest, I don't see how, like, why there is so much umbrage about what he said, because it's the truth. I mean... There's no grounding in these movies in reality. I love them. I mean, like, let, let me let truth be told. I don't I love these movies, but they're movies. They're not film. They're not cinema. And I don't see why people like are people such thick, uh, thin skin now that they can't take a director looking at something and giving an honest answer to a, the state of uh, the state of film. Yeah, yeah, no, you're exactly right, and 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 part of the problem is is you know, um, and, and I deal with this uh, with people a lot because, you know, just I mean, uh, especially I think I like this time of year, going to Christmas parties and stuff like that. If if people know that you're a film critic, uh, especially lately, if they've seen any of my stuff through the television, online stuff that I have with video, uh, you know, they'll approach you and and want to talk about movies, but they can occasionally act like you're up on some kind of academic pedestal, you know, like, yeah. oh, well, you probably wouldn't like this crummy movie that entertains me. You know, what lofty, high-minded kind of thing uh, should I be watching? And so that's really, you know, it's all just wrong altogether. Uh, you know, especially for me, I mean, it's like the way that I tell some people, I'm like, you know, I can enjoy an amazing hamburger and onion rings, and then I can go somewhere and enjoy an amazing, you know, $75 gourmet meal. And so, you know, it, they both have their merits. They're both enjoyable. They both make for, you know, an entertaining, uh, you know, evening out at a restaurant or what have you. But they're two completely different things. And and so uh, I never really have like the expression guilty pleasure. People will throw that around. Oh, it's just kind of my guilty pleasure. And I'm like, don't be like that, you know, own it. You know, if that's what you like, like it, you know, there's yeah. nobody out here who's telling you don't like it. I like the Marvel movies. I love the, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, dark Knight trilogy. I think I was really kind of the peak of that form. Uh, but you know, I was a comic book kid. I mean, I had a gajillion comic books. Matter of fact, I hung on to them for forever and, uh, sold them to buy my first drum set when I got into music. And, uh, and so my dream come true was seeing live action comic book films, because when I was a kid, they didn't exist. It was all cartoons. And so I was just like, man, wouldn't it be cool if one day they're actually like superhero movies with real people playing the superheroes and they came along and I was just gobsmacked by the whole thing. But I wouldn't take a film like that and say, let's compare it to Citizen Kane, Vertigo, uh, you know, any of the the top films out there that you can think of. And so I really think that's all his comment was, is, you know, it's just, it's kind of not serious cinema. 
is the way that I would take it. Absolutely. It is like he's basically saying the thing that I've I've told people before, which is, is that like the Marvel movies and the DC movies, uh, like any kind of caught up comic book movies are are just that they're movies. There's a dis- difference to me, at least uh, in the term movies and film, uh, pop culture and cinema. Like we're living in an era that is highly, highly like influenced by pop culture. And that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not I'm not criticizing that. I'm literally looking at it and seeing one of the titans of cinema. I mean, like when when in a hundred years from now, Martin Scorsese is going to be just of an as an important milestone as a a single filmmaker, as the entire MCU is going to be for the next however many like years that this particular phase of cinema like lasts however long it lasts because it is a phase i mean nobody thought the western was going to die and what happened as soon as as soon as rockets started being launched into uh, into the atmosphere in the 60s um yeah the western started to die and die very quickly um and so like like i look at it as this is just another phase in in cinema it's it's a very awkward phase and sometimes it can be when we're looking at it now, it's very dangerous considering that, you know, people like, you know, the four or five movies that people are going to a year are basically tentpole films and they're not giving smaller films a chance. And by smaller films, I mean films with human interaction, like true human interaction, like what, what Scorsese was ta- was talking about. And I think that that's what I latch on to when I look, when I, when I read the Scorsese quote, like he crystallized something for me that made that made sense where he and the guy, the, the, the men and women of the seventies, when they were making films, they were trying to make films that connected emotionally and psychologically. Whereas, I mean, let's be honest, the MCU, as much as we, as much as we love it and we're, we're seeing things that we probably never thought like, you know, 12, like 10 year old Adam and 10 year old Scott never thought that they would ever see or could not imagine what they're seeing. But at the same time, that's all we're seeing, it seems like, from major studios. And I think that, that Scorsese has a true point in that it feels like like it's it's just theme parks. It's it's theme parks, but it's inoffensive theme parks. And we're gonna be talking about Scorsese in a way like where some of his films are highly offensive. Like it's not even offensive, it's that they're they're shining the light on very dark psychological issues. And uh, we're going to talk, we're talking, we're going to talk about one that has like groundings and has its fingers dipped in a recent comic book movie that bends that, bends that term very, very, very strongly. And we'll get into that later. But um, did you have any other thoughts about this whole Scorsese um, and the filmmakers of the seventies versus the MCU? (laughs) Well, you know, the, the the thing that gets me, and it's becoming really common in, in our culture in general, is if you don't agree with me, then your opinion is uninformed or irrelevant. I don't care. The whole kind of cancel culture kind of concept. 
It's yeah. like, you know, Scorsese doesn't love the stuff that I love. So who the hell is Martin Scorsese? You know, you're an overrated, you know, whatever. And so those were the ones that really got to me when people were like, oh, well, you know, was that guy? No, he's only ever made gangster movies, which, of course, is completely untrue. Uh, and, and ignorant, and you're going to find that out during the course of this episode or two that you and I are talking uh, about the variety of subjects that he's, you know, covered over the course of a career. And so that's where you lose me. You know, when you want to tell me that one of the greatest filmmakers who's ever lived, his his opinion on filmmaking is somehow irrelevant uh, or ill-informed or something like that, my response to you is, you know, I'll be happy to mute <laughs> whatever, whatever <laughs> thread or channel or whatever you're talking on, because the, you know, you just don't even make sense. Uh, and so that was what kind of got to me the most was, you know, the people who are responding like, well, and I don't like your movies. And I'm like, well, I'm sure he's not concerned, uh, at this point. And then, you know, there's, there's something also to be said for, you know, everything is of its time. And so, you know, I often wonder, you know, I don't know, what if Fellini watched a Scorsese movie? Would he love it? You know, would Scorsese's idols love his movies? Or would they look at his stuff and go, that's not really a movie to me. You know, just a bunch of people running around cussing at each other. Uh, You just never know. I mean, you know, you just never know what their impression might be of his work. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it's just, uh, I I think that a lot of it can also just be generational that most of these people who were championing the Marvel films and getting upset are like half his age. And so a third of his age at this point, I mean, Oh yeah. He turned 77 (laughs) this past week. So, uh, you know, so I think that's a lot to do with it. And it's much like, you know, I'm, I'm 50, you know, I hit the Mm -hmm. milestone in 2019. I'm a child of 1969. Uh, and you know, when I go back and rewatch stuff now, I run a local film society and when I'm going to show something, I'm always like, you know, I should watch that again and make sure that it really impacts me the way that it did. And so it's funny how give yourself 10, 20 years and you look at things so much differently. And so I think you've just got, you know, like we were just saying 20, 30, 40, even 50 years between him and these people making these ridiculous comments. And so part of me, you know, you sound like the old guy telling people to get off your lawn or whatever, but I, I just want to look at him and say, give it some time, give it some time, go back and revisit this thought 10, 20 years from now. And it may be different. And, and, and and so I think it's, it's very much, you know, of a time, uh, when you get into some of these conflicts, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it's really interesting to me that, that like what, what hurt most, like seeing those comments was that was, it was like, you guys are comparing, you guys are comparing like these filmmakers that are making that are making comic book movies to Scorsese and Scorsese is not just a, f- like he's a documentarian. He's, uh, he's, his primary goal in all of it is to make sure that cinema survives. And so like, he's, he's preserved so many films, not just in the U S but his world cinema project, which he yep. made with his own money. Like yep. when you, when you see a man who's ponying up money to do, 
to to preserve things and make sure that history stays. It's it shows you that there's a true passion there. Like I feel like documentaries are things that you do for passion. Like that shows the grit of a true filmmaker. If they've directed multiple documentaries, you got to have a lot more respect for them than just the the because there's no money in documentaries. And you look at Scorsese's Scorsese has been credited 64 times as a director. And you look at you look at all of his doc, uh, his his work and at least a third of it is documentary. That tells yep. you something about him. Yep. You know, that tells you that this man is not just somebody who and like, you know, the whole thing of like, oh, he's only made gangster movies like I I have uh, like, you know, you and I, pro- I think we've talked about before. There's a certain movie in his in his oeuvre that's that's a delicate romance that's set in the early 1900s. And I don't know anybody from the MCU that could pull something that varied off from going from (laughs) that to going to say something as violent and dark as Goodfellas and do so (laughs) and, and do so within three years of each other. Like, which means that you're developing the project probably at the same time. And it's just, it's just, it's all around. It's just like, to me, it, it feels like, like if you're saying that stuff about Scorsese and not actually listening to what he has to say, then maybe you shouldn't call yourself a film critic. I mean, to just to be perfectly honest, if you're if you're so upset that he, quote unquote, bruised or damaged the MCU in some way, then like, you know, what what does that say about you? Yeah, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think I think in a way that, you know, film critics kind of wear two hats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I we're fans first. You know, you don't you don't do this because it pays giant money and you get <laughs> to just true. jet all over the world uh, and have a great time with, you know, famous people. Uh, there are very, very, very few uh, folks in this industry that that get to do that. You know, you basically do it. Uh, because you were a fan first. So this idea of film critics just crapping all over everything because they're such buddy duddies and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, it's just not true. I mean, we're fans first or you wouldn't be doing this. And so I think what happens with people, it's like based on experience. And so you want to watch a lot more movies than the average person who has to get a babysitter and, you know, make a big night out of it and have date night out and things like that. Uh, Mostly seeing things in their home, streaming stuff after the kids have gone to bed. You know, you and I see, you know, hundreds more movies in the course of a year uh, than people like that do. And so I think one of the things that happens is we start to look for originality. You get tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. And so then if as a critic, you recommend something that's unusual, that's out of the ordinary, like a uh, last black man in San Francisco Mm -hmm. uh, as a 2019 example, uh, then people think that it's some kind of lofty, high minded film critic kind of thing. And really, it's just why don't you check this out? Because I guarantee you, you've never seen anything like it before. And so I think that some of what creeps into this is any genre that just has a sameness to it uh, becomes old for film critics pretty quickly. 
you're absolutely 150% correct. And um, it, this is going to be an ongoing topic. I, I just have a feeling like this is this is not something that's done. But it, it's like I have to I have to really I, I know it sounds weird, but I have to thank Martin Scorsese for bringing this up because like shaking up film and film criticism is, is something that should be done every once in a while. Like, you know, and he, I don't even think he meant to be so like what I think people feel is glib, which I would never say that about Scorsese, but I think that the, the way that people read it was very glibly. And yeah, because I don't think he thought that anybody would even pay any attention to it. Yeah. Because he was probably, I think he was pretty shocked. Exactly. Uh, by, by, by that reaction, you know. Um, and I will leave this topic with this is um, I would suggest people get the um, their, uh, the book publisher Faber does these great uh, filmmaker on filmmaker um, books. And they, of course, they have all the greats, the Titans. And if you don't know these, if you don't know these Faber books, like, uh, gosh, uh, please go ahead and get them. I have at least 10 of them. It may be 15 of them. One of them I have, and I've bought multiple times because they've updated it, is Scorsese on Scorsese. And the first book, the first version of it I read was one, it was probably produced around, or it was probably updated around 95 or so so you're looking at around the time that um that he had he had done age of the innocent um uh he was kind of like in a a no man's land because he oh no it was probably just after casino and they asked him something they asked him did he still like at a certain point in a certain one of the interviews um i think it was after goodfellas they uh, they asked him if he still went to the cinema and he said, of course I do. I, he's like, I love the cinema. And he's like, I I go to see every, I try to go to see everything. And one of the things that he talked about was he was like, you know, um, he's like, I was finishing up something. And I can't remember what he was saying that he was finishing up. But, or I think it was actually uh, Goodfellas he was working on. And he was there with Spielberg, Coppola. And Lucas, they were watching an edit. And then afterwards, he was like, because it was opening day of The Abyss, James James Cameron's amazing movie. And he talks about how they went to go see it. They knew, like, they had heard it was going to be a bomb because when they went to go see it in Westwood, which is a really, like, super deluxe place to go see a movie in L.A., um, they were there front, like, you know, first three rows. Nobody was in there, just them. And they just watched the movie. And he's like, I enjoyed it. It was great. Cameron knows what he's doing when he makes adventure films. And he kind of like gave this little kind of dissertation about Cameron and the big epics. And I often think about that with Scorsese is that regardless of what he like the negative connotations that he had for the MCU, he said that he tried. And that's the thing that I always feel like is the difference between somebody who somebody who is a true film fan and someone who's just, they like their own thing is that they're going to try it. Like he tried it. He tried the MCU and it wasn't for him. And you know, that doesn't mean that he's not going to ever try it again, or he's not going to look at other things, which I feel like more people could take, take the advice of, of Scorsese in the way that he does things, which is that his eyes are open to everything. 
And maybe we should be a little bit like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it sets a, a, a great uh, example to be open to all kinds of stuff. And I think, you know, really what he's saying is just that type of thing just didn't for me. Exactly. I mean, that's really all it boiled down to. You know, I mean, even the little brief quote that you read a minute ago, uh, he was saying that, you know, the actors, you know, do a great job with the material that they're presented with, uh, that they're kind of good films within the context of what that genre is, its limitations, what have you. He wasn't saying this is crap filmmaking. He was just saying, I don't consider this to be some kind of relatable cinema about people and about human beings relating to one another and, and, you know, how they live their lives and stuff like that. And I don't really think there's any arguing with that. I mean, by definition, superhero movies are not really about that. <laughs> exactly. And with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into our next topic. See, but I come from a time when movies were films. Now, some were genre. You follow? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Years later, we realized, well, within the genre, mm -hmm. certain things were able to be expressed, certain uh, personal uh, style developed, not all the time, but very often. And then one could appreciate the genre for what it is. And that's what I'm saying about the, uh, the uh, theme park films. For what they are, they can be appreciated. But that's not the only thing. Yes. You follow? Like and we have, it's our obligation to, to uh, try to um, make that clear mm -hmm. to that audience. All right, we are back, and um, we're going to kind of take our time with getting to our main topic, which is the Irishman. Um, what we're going to, what we, what I first wanted to talk about was like um, our history with Scorsese and how we can kind of start, like how I wanted to start with that is asking Scott, what was the first Scorsese film that you ever saw? You know, uh, when when you told me that we were uh, or, or invited me to to do this, uh, I I had to think about that for a little while. It was like because I mean, you know, I'm ten years older than you. I saw more of his stuff in theaters than you did, mm -hmm. uh, and so I was trying to think back to, and and, and I knew that it was it was either I rented taxi driver and then saw the king of comedy in a theater or i saw the king of comedy in a theater and rented taxi driver so i can't i can't honestly remember at this point uh which it was i remember how it got started it got started oddly because of uh francis ford coppola because i was a huge fan of the first two godfather films Oh, and okay. so, uh, to this day, Godfather two is still one of my all time favorite films. And, uh, and of course it, it features De Niro in it, uh, as the young Vito Corleone doing almost all of his part in Italian. And, uh, I remember watching that movie and of course, you know, Al Pacino is amazing in that movie. And so it really made me fans of both of them. And so it was like when I got introduced to, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about kind of this season, you're going to follow filmmakers. And I think that may come later in your movie watching kind of career. I think we all start out doing that kind of curation, but we usually start out doing it with actors. Yes. And so it's definitely. like you see somebody and you're like, oh my gosh, I love that person. I want to see more stuff with them in it. Mm -hmm. And so I remember 
that uh, seeing Godfather 2 sent me seeing Serpico, uh, ah. seeing Dog Day Afternoon, uh, and then it also sent me down the path of seeing other De Niro films. And so I honestly don't remember if it was I got Taxi Driver from the good old video store Mm-hmm. Uh, and then King of Comedy came to town or the other way around. But I know the first Scorsese film I saw in a theater uh, was King of Comedy. And that was because I was such a Robert De Niro freak. And then the good news for me at the whopping age of, I think, 13 when that came out is oddly King of Comedy is rated PG. And Which so, is still shocking to me. It's yeah. still super yeah. shocking to me. Yeah, and, and so there's no parental pushback. Nobody was telling me I, I shouldn't see it uh, or whatever. And I remembered seeing it, and of course I'm sure that you know I didn't get half of the material that was in it, uh, but I still remember being mesmerized by it and, and really overall liking it. Uh, and then I, I still remember uh, renting Taxi Driver uh, because it was just so gritty and seedy <laughs> and and everything that it quickly became like I had brought some kind of porn film home. It was like <laughs> I was watching it and thinking, oh, geez, please don't let my parents walk in while I'm watching this. You know, we got some preteen hooker and pimps and, you know, people shooting each other and, you know, all of this kind of stuff and just done in such kind of graphic, realistic uh, CD, you know, kind of fashion, uh, that I remembered, you know, it was, it was almost like something that you should have brought home in a black plastic wrapper or something, uh, from the video store. And so I remember just being astonished that, you know, that, that, that existed, you know, a, a, that people that lived lives like this and then B that this film existed. And so it was really kind of both. It was like, you know, I mean, because immediately, I mean, as a kid growing up in the South, you know, you're sitting there going, oh, my God, this is what it's like to live in New York. You know, these people are crazy, you know. And uh, and so uh, it, it had a profound uh, impact on me. But uh, so my answer is is not as much a, a cheat uh, as just <laughs> that was uh, approaching 40 years ago. And so I know that it was either Taxi Driver or The King of Comedy. They both hit for me kind of right around the same time. But uh, what about you? We have a decade between us, so your experience was likely different. Yeah, it was just a little bit different. Um, I actually – like it's funny because like I started with one of the greats. I started with Goodfellas. Um, so – I actually did not, uh, I didn't see it in the theater. Um, I actually saw it on VHS. Uh, but the thing was, was that like even the advertising for it, cause I remember the advertising. I remember the movie trailers. I remember the TV spots. Everything about it was so different than, um, what I had seen in gangster films about, uh, up until that time. So up until that time, if you think about it, I was about 12 at the time. So I'd seen like, I'd seen some of the classics like angels with dirty faces. Um, I'd seen the original Scarface. And then of course the De Palma remake, uh, I'd seen the Godfather, but I had not seen the Godfather part two. And so like, I'd seen some of the Titans, but, 
they were all really kind of shot differently than this movie was. Like it even looked like like just watching. I remember seeing the trailer and how much that that trailer hit me because it does this great job of showing you, yeah, this is not your average gangster movie. This is going to be way different. And then, um, I mean, you know, back when you're 12 or 13 and the, the film bug hits you, you're you're totally raptured with the Oscars and everything, like everything that you can get your hands on movie wise that that is experiential. You do like, you you know, the the Oscars were a big thing back then. And seeing Joe Pesci win that Oscar kind of solidified it for me because I'd never seen because like when they when they talked about him. They did the, I mean, of course, the the famous scene, which is now just a cliche, but I don't think that anybody really remembers why that scene works the way it does. It, and that's what hooked me was the seeing the scene on so many award circuits and going, who is this psychotic? And like having to see the, having to see the full movie. And then when you see the full movie, like when I was a kid, I you don't see movie like you didn't see movies like that. You didn't see somebody who was a true psychopath that could kill somebody at any time. And it, it's it's already set up. And that's what I love about that movie is that it was kind of set up in a way that that what what makes me so funny is not like now it's a joke. But back then, when you hadn't seen it, when it was like, you know, 1990 and the movie was released that was a scary fucking scene because you had already seen him multiple times, like just straight up beat the shit out of somebody or stab somebody. And in that moment, you're like, anything could happen in this movie. He could fucking kill Henry, like literally could kill Henry. And that's kind of what hooked me when I went to, when I saw the movie was the nervy tension of it all. He made like this biopic where you kind of figure out that you 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 kind of think that he's going to survive. But then if you know anything about cinema and the way that Scorsese works now, like looking back on it, hearing the voiceover, it could have been a dead vo- a dead narrator like a la Sun- uh, Sunset Boulevard um, sure. with Goodfellas. But the thing is, is that that movie is so it sets up and <laughs> we've talked about this movie. We've written about Goodfellas. Um, that movie, it hooks you in so many different ways, um, that it's the primer. Like, I feel like if no one had ever seen a Scorsese film, the movie that you would probably show them as a primer of his career is Goodfellas. And like, from that point, I was hooked. I was like, my little, my, my little beady claws could not get enough of him. And by that point, <laughs> it, it was a nice, it was a nice enough, like there was a nice enough filmography that you could go back and see at least 10, like, I think it was at least 10 films that I had that I could go see and that I could go back to. And of course, you know, from that point forward, I had like, I had a really nice run. Like, like you had an even nicer run after King of Comedy because like you got, you get the buildup to Goodfellas after I get the downward slide of Goodfellas. So like I get Cape Fear, I got Age of Innocence, Casino, Kundun. Like I get the point where he goes, you know what? I've done the gangster film. I may do one more really big one. But I'm going to focus on other things. And so, like, you got to see Scorsese. I got to see Scorsese spread his wings a little bit. Um, but it it also kind of, like, I find it interesting because I often think about 
think about those those people that that Wolf of Wall Street was their first Scorsese. Like, I mean, like that to me is just so odd. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, well, and and his he he has a really good ability to tap into the energy of the era. Yes, and and so his seventies films feel very seventies. Uh, but, uh, you know, Goodfellas made in 91 still feels like it, it is of the era that the characters are living in. Mm-hmm. And so Wolf of Wall Street is kind of in a way, one of those rare movies of his where he is making the movie in, in the same time almost that it is set in. This so it's a very movie. modern film for him, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and all of the corporate greed and corporate raiders and all of that kind of stuff. And so it has kind of a, it, its own kind of kinetic energy to it that very much reflects, uh, the era in which all of it took place. And so, yeah, it would be very different to go back and then say, uh, I'm going to watch, you know, mean streets after seeing that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It, it, it it's. Uh, but Mean Streets feels like so like I recently rewatched it. Um, I got the uh, the Blu-ray that they uh, that they released, like the single disc Blu-ray. And so, of course, I was I picked it up and wow, that film feels so wild. Like it, it it's it's like the way that um, you could tell, like to me, like what rewatching Mean Streets, um, it really felt like a guy who watched a lot of Cassavetes. Like almost too much Cassavetes. Yep. And I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> it, but it's, it's weird. It, well, I mean, it's just it's very indie feeling. Yes. And and I, and you don't tend to think of Scorsese as an indie filmmaker. I mean, no. things like Goodfellas, Casino, The Irishman, Wolf of Wall Street. All those movies are incredibly well polished. Have a very distinctive, you know, expensive production design to them. Uh, you know, cinematography and editing that goes with uh, a very polished kind of production. And so, yeah, yeah. So those those early films like a Mean Streets have a very gritty New York indie film kind of feel to them. But my favorite part about Mean Streets is that it's an indie movie shot for like 12 bucks, but it has one of the best fucking soundtracks in the world. You could not get this soundtrack now. Like, just like, okay, so Jumping Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones. Tell Me by the Rolling Stones. I Love You So by the Chantels. Um, uh, what else do we have here? Um, I Looked Away from Derek and the Dominoes. Please, Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. I mean, these any of these songs probably would have cost at the at the point, like, you know, like at the point, like, say, in the 1980s, would have cost as much as... The, the entire movie cost. I mean, <laughs> right. Like, it's literally like when I was watching it, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Like, this can't be, this really can't be the soundtrack. He must have done something. But then I was reading about these are the songs that, because no one did what, like, nobody did needle drops the way that he did at that point. I mean, he kind right. of, he made, like, like, like to go back to the MCU, which I find totally hilarious, is that, you know, a lot of people want to, like, talk shit about him and stuff. But without him, James Gunn doesn't do the needle drops that he does in the MCU with the Guardians of the Galaxy. He just doesn't. Like, that, like he stole that entire shtick from Scorsese. 
Right. Like any anybody who is anybody who has taken rock music and set it to like a contrary image is basically doing exactly what Scorsese did. Um, which I find totally hilarious. And it's like you watch both, uh, you watch Mean Streets and it, it is a Scorsese film, but it's like the, the beginnings of a Scorsese film. He has to like kind of go through everything before he gets to, um, before he gets to something like, like Raging Bull, which I feel is like his first, um, Italian American experiential film. And, it become like from that point forward, it, it just kind of like it, it and we, we will be talking about this in the Irishman, how it how he moves up the ladder on things. Like first he started laterally, then he moved, and then he slowly moved up the ladder in in the way that he portrayed crime within the Italian American community, which is fascinating. Um to see somebody who like Bergman with death <laughs> brings like such a continuity to his his filming, which I personally feel like and and I'd like you to talk about this, like I don't think it was intentional. It, it, like he's not like Quentin Tarantino where he's intentionally doing things in his in his filmography. It just naturally progresses like that. Yeah, well, I, and I think that part of it is, you know, he so often has um, nonfiction source material that he works from. Yes. And and so I think that there are probably topics that interested him, Italian American kind of subculture, so to speak, uh, that he wanted, uh, to tell their stories. And it was a matter of the right thing coming along. And so it was like, so then he, you know, somehow, uh, encounters, uh, Pelleggi's book, uh, that he turns into Goodfellas, or he encounters, uh, you know, the book uh, that uh, Sheeran and I forget the name of the co-author, but uh, you know, you paint houses, don't you? That the Irishman is based on, yep. and and so and then you find a good screenwriter, uh, you know, these guys like Zalian and some of those folks who are really great at adaptations, and that's really what sparks it. You know, I mean, the Jordan Belford, you know, story in The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. almost all of his his films uh, that have these huge casts and this huge scope uh, is not something that he made up out of his brain or that a screenwriter made up out of their brain. Uh, it's usually based on some kind of nonfiction work that got passed to him somehow or he heard about it second or third hand from somebody he was working with, checked it out and thought, oh, my gosh, there's a movie here. And so I, I think some of his career, as opposed to sitting back and saying, you know, I think next I want to do a story about X, uh, it was kind of what found him. You know, it's like it's really interesting because I talked to documentary filmmakers sometimes in in the work that we do and and there's always a commonality to them which is rarely are they sitting around brainstorming a topic of a film the topic finds them there's yeah. just you know they know somebody somebody in their family a friend uh, a local news story uh, you know maybe they have some connection in their family tree to some particular subject matter or something like that and it seems like the the subject matter finds them and so in a way he's almost like a documentary filmmaker with his narrative films that it's like you know somehow these subjects seem to find him and he says yes this is something that I want to do and it may take 5 8 
10 years to germinate into something. Uh, but you know, that seems to be the way that he kind of picks his projects. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, um, it, it really does feel like that. And, and reading about the way that he develops things, it, it's definitely a partnership with his writers, like, which I find very interesting, like the age of innocence, like, which is a really big film for me. Um, it was actually, uh, it's the, it's the second film that I, I saw in the theater with Scorsese. Cause I mean, after Goodfellas, you know, you, you, you bet your ass that I would be lying, stealing, stealing and cheating everybody in my family to get for somebody to get me to go see Cape Fear, even though, Everything was a no, I mean, and just leave it to my dad and like, you know, at the time my parents were divorced, leave it to my dad to be able to let me go see that movie, a a highly inappropriate movie at 13 to see just because (laughs) it dealt with so much more. But like you look at uh, Age of Innocence and he developed that with Jay Cox for something like like as long as as long as it took them like they started um, that around the same time that they were developing Gangs of New York back in the 80s when it was supposed to star Robert De Niro and it was going to have a, a soundtrack from The Clash and The Sex Pistols. Like, that's how long ago that Age of Innocence, and that was like 15 years before it actually turned into a movie. And I kind of love that about Scorsese is that he takes these long gestating periods to produce something and really does kind of make it quality over quantity even though if you look at his filmography i mean 64 films or 64 projects that have been directed uh since um i think probably about 1964 1965 when he was at nyu right that's right that's a staggering number of projects but he also understands and i think that this is something that i feel gets lost when we talk about scorsese is his almost dogmatic like sense of story because when you watch his films yeah they're freewheeling and they're visually arresting but his films are very classically told movies they have an a they have a b they have a c they are very three-act structured now the way that they go about it is you know it is very different sometimes um but for the most part, he's very much so a classic a classic filmmaker, but he manages to blow up the stories in a way that's the best way possible. And um, like, I mean, like my first, like Goodfellas is the perfect example of it. Casino is also another perfect example of it about taking a narrative and twisting it and bending it into the way that you want it to be. Almost like a, like I look at Casino as part opera, part like 60 minute newsreel thing like it's this weird docudrama kind of mixed in with an op like a, this operatic kind of arched tone um that's wonderful but it still adheres to the the biopic structure which is i always find amazing about him is that he manages to do that like as much as like you know in the 80s and the 90s we we talked about how visually stunning he was like his movies were legitimately great written material yeah and he uh and and he has a habit throughout his his films that are like that uh to not really adhere to a set timeline yeah you know we jump in and out of past present uh flashbacks things like that and it's very lifelike in that way 
You know, it's, it's, yep. if you're supposed to be like with Goodfellas, you're supposed to be taking it as if you're sitting there with Henry and he's telling you his story. Yep. And exactly. that's what you're hearing with the voiceover and everything like that. And so it's not uncommon if you were to sit down with somebody for, you know, several hours for them to say, tell me about your life that you'd have the moments where you go, Oh, oh, oh well, hang on just a second. I probably should have told you about X. And so it has this, you know, it kind of not necessarily in order. It's not neatly. We do childhood. Then we do this. Then we do this. It does have that structure, but it will bounce back and forth between the two uh, when it introduces new characters, when something comes up uh, that's a new plot element or what have you. And so it's just very effective. It has a very documentary feel to it, a kind of a verite kind of feel to it that you're in this world with these people learning their lives. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, I think that's a great way to close out this topic and, uh, we'll move on to the, uh, to the next. Goodfellas is a better example because it was made in 90, 91 or 90, I think. And we, um, very simply trace the lineage right past, right to the forties, um, of the, the gangster films by Raoul Walsh, the films coming out of Warner Brothers, particularly Roaring Twenties, um, down to the early, through the 30s, but particularly two films, um, Scarface and Public Enemy. And we're back, folks. And uh, now we're actually going to be uh, talking, we're, we're, we're going to have a little bit of fun here. Before we get into The Irishman, we're actually going to be talking about um, our uh, top five Scorsese films or our favorite Scorsese films. Um, actually, I don't even know how, how Scott approached this. So I'm going to actually ask him how he approached this. And then what we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to talk about them from in order, uh, in descending order. So from five to one, and then we're going to actually talk, uh, after that, we're going to talk a little bit about underrated Scorsese because we all talk about like the, the pillars of Scorsese's career, but, <laughs> but I feel like there's so much more variedness to his career. And, um, I think that we're having a little bit of fun with the under, what I would call the underrated Scorsese. So yeah. with that, I'm going to hand it over to Scott and he's going to talk to you a little bit about how he approached it. And then we're going to go into his number five. Well, you know, I, I always have kind of a problem with the idea of best, and you've heard me talk about that before. Uh, you know, if anybody has ever read any of my year-end uh, list-type columns that I've written, uh, I've put this in several introductions over the years, which is, you know, best kind of conveys there's some standard by which things are measured. And so yeah. objectively, I can say here are the best movies by so-and-so or, or what have you. And I think, and some people view it as a cop out, you know, own your opinions and all this kind of stuff. But I think the bottom line is, you know, it really is always just favorite, you know, I mean, that's really in the end, your best, your best or your favorite films that you saw this year. Now, some of them may be the best technically speaking and, and may receive lots of awards and things like that. And some of them may be things that, you know, just moved you, resonated with you uh, that are not going to garner a bunch of awards and a bunch of attention and things like that. And so I kind of put this list together uh, by a combination of kind of what it meant to me when I saw it uh, versus how well do I think it still holds up. Uh, which most of his films, it's amazingly well. 
Uh, and, and so it's, you know, everything from where it kind of fits in, in society, like my first topic and my first one will be just, you know, it's almost like he predicted the next, you know, 40 years of American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so that's really, really kind of where my list comes from is, is what are the ones that I can kind of watch out over and over again and always enjoy and always get something new out of, uh, they maintain their relevance, you know, thematically, uh, and everything like that. And then also at the same time, you know, just what it did when I saw it and, uh, and you know, what it did for me just as a film and my desire to see more films, uh, but not just, you know, the amazing thing is, is when you see a really great movie by any filmmaker, it doesn't just make you want to see more movies by that filmmaker. It just makes you want to take more chances and see more stuff by anybody who knows what they're doing. You and are so I think that's what, correct on that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I just think that that's what gets lost in this is, you know, if you go see a kind of, you know, out there movie by somebody and it, it whets that appetite. You know, you say, gosh, I, I got to find me some more, you know, edgy stuff like this or, you know, uh, you know, kind of modern kind of things like this or maybe even the exact opposite. You know, uh, you go see, uh, you know, Eggers, the the lighthouse and I'm sitting around like Jones in for, you know, black and white films with weird aspect ratios, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so it's just like, you know, sometimes when you encounter those challenging movies and really get into them and really get a lot out of it. You're just like, you know, bring it on. You know, it's like kind of like food for your brain. Uh, you know, bring on something else that's gonna gonna challenge me and interest me. Uh, that isn't just uh, you know standard fare. Absolutely. Okay. No, I definitely like that's definitely like the best way to approach. Uh, and you <laughs> and you you basically um, have said it in a lit in a lot more of an elegant way than I could ever how I approached my list too. So there's no really need for me to talk about it. And let's just get into your number five. Uh, yeah. Number five for me, you know, and it's just crazy when you can sit here and make a list and say that your number five is taxi driver. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, and I mean, you may disagree. <laughs> maybe you're number one, but I'm just saying, you know that you're dealing with some serious, serious <laughs> talent when, you know, you look at, at, at these, you know, five films that I will name and think of how many great ones got left out. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, but taxi driver was the one that I was alluding to where I was saying, mm-hmm. it's like he predicted the next, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, of American society, uh, which is this dangerous loner, you know, the, the person with the delusions of, 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 of grandeur or a, a violent streak in them, uh, somebody who's, you know, just unhinged enough to kind of go do something about whatever they're unhinged about. And, uh, you know, I referred to it, uh, when I was, was writing about something the other day is mass casualty culture. And, and that's kind of where we are is this idea of these kind of domestic terrorists, these people that will just, you know, explode, uh, in public and, you know, take some people with them. And, uh, you know, the scary guy with the gun looking at himself in the mirror, 
and so uh, that's one of the reasons that you know right now it's big to you know what's the 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 best movie of the decade. And uh, once again, I have to say, well, you know, what do you mean by best? Uh, and then I say, you know, the movie that probably most captures the 2010s is we need to talk about Kevin. Yep. It uh, you know, now a lot of people be like, oh, God, you know, no, you know, what have you, you know, the social network, what have you. And I get where they're coming from and can totally get behind that. But unfortunately, you know, it was at the very beginning of the 2010s that that movie came out and it just showed us. You know, what we were a in the midst of, but it's gotten even worse since then. And just, you know, these 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 people that, you know, are just kind of outside of society and and living, uh, you know, in kind of fringe mental health territory, I would say. And so uh, to me, uh, you know, Taxi Driver is just eerily prescient to have been, you know, a film from the 1970s. Uh, that showed us, you know, where our country was headed decades later. You're right on. We're going to see this one a little bit later in my list, and I'll save my comments. But, I mean, you're dead on in regards to predicting 40 years. And it actually leads kind of perfectly into um, my number five, which is um, something we talked about before. And this one is also a prediction of of our society um, in the last, like the rising of this particular kind of style of, uh, of culture. Um, my number five is the King of comedy. Uh, and I feel like this movie more than any other movie kind of predicted celebrity culture in the way that it has been transmuted over the last couple of years with people having ownership, like thinking that they have ownership over a celebrity and more so than that the entitlement at which people have about not just celebrities but their own their own worthiness to be to be famous um it's deathly funny it is super super uncomfortable um, all I need to tell you is, is that there's, there's a scene that involves, uh, Jerry Lewis, Robert, uh, Robert De Niro and Sandra Bernhardt, if you know who Sandra Bernhardt is. And every time I see this particular scene, it makes me shudder as much as it makes me laugh. And that probably tells, I don't want to ruin what the scene is, but you will know it because it's the most, probably the most infamous scene in this, in this movie. Um, but this is a movie that... Um, I kind of like, so this is the movie that people really should see because they've already seen the remake of it, which is the Joker. <laughs> right. Uh, with the exception of the last 10 minutes where it turns into a comic book movie, the Joker is basically this movie in a lot of ways, this and taxi driver. It takes a lot from like so much so that they, they, they initially had this as executive produced by Martin Scorsese. And I think it was basically a payoff to him because they didn't want him coming back saying you stole from two of my most infamous movies, one that nobody sees and one that everybody sees. Um, It is like, it's just, and it is unlike anything that Scorsese did, Scorsese did in that time because it's shot differently. It's kind of very much shot like 
<laughs> and I'm going deep diving here. It's kind of shot the way, the same way that Sidney Lumet kind of shot Network, which is increasingly phony and phonier and phonier, like to represent the the mindset of the lunatic that it's actually following. And I just love the distance. I love the the fact that he just puts his camera. It's a, such a static movie, but everything that happens in that frame is not is is never static. Um, it's a very, very um, powerful film, especially with the 40 years of self-celebrity and the, the creation of social media now and how much everybody thinks that they have their own audience. Yeah. Uh, uh, King of Comedy is on my list as well. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I have it at number three. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And no, but you're exactly right. I, I recently rewatched this movie uh, because – one of the things that I try to do with the film society that I lead is choose something that is going on right now in film and then make my older film selection relevant because of that discussion. Mm-hmm. So when Joker was coming out and everybody was saying, oh, it borrows so heavily uh, from King of Comedy and, you know, it's not a coincidence that, you know, Robert De Niro is cast as the talk show host uh, as kind of a little meta wink uh, to that film. And so I thought, you know, I haven't shown a Scorsese movie yet. I was trying to decide which one. I didn't want to do the obvious ones. And so I thought I'm going to show King of Comedy. And then if people go and see Joker, they can kind of see those parallels. And so I've just had an opportunity to resee it within the last couple of months. And, yeah, it just – if you take, you know, 80s talk show culture like like we had back then that I remember very well because it would yeah. have been, you know, 13 at the time, like I said, um, you know, uh, the kind of Johnny Carson show, that kind of environment where the peak of fame pre-social media, pre-internet uh, was being a guest on one of those shows. And so if you just take that and substitute for it reality television, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your substitute would be, it it translates so well almost 40 years later, this idea of you don't have to be talented, you just have to be infamous. Yep. You know, that's that... You know, because used to it was you got on these various shows because, you know, you're an incredible musician or you were a great actor or you were a really, truly funny stand up comedian or, you know, even like famous best selling author, you know, Stephen King would be on talk shows, you know, stuff like that. And so used to it just was the place for the mega talented. And then now it's become kind of this place just for the mega famous as if fame is in and of itself an accomplishment. Yep. Fame and for so fame's that's what, sake. Yep, exactly. And that is what that movie does uh, such a good job of uh, is, you know, everything from the delusion regarding your own talent and value uh, uh, versus, you know, you deserve your, your 15 minutes, uh, if not, you know, 15 years uh, of fame. And so it's, it's amazingly uh, relevant to this day. I mean, you substitute certain technologies, you know, phone booths and <laughs> hardline telephones and stuff like that for modern day technology. And, you know, you could almost do a, a shot for shot remake of the thing. Absolutely. 
and it would be just as electrifying as it is um, that it was 40 years ago. I mean, the, like, and let us note, uh, let us note with with the King of Comedy, massive failure. Huge fucking failure for Scorsese. So much so that he he had to, like, go indie for a while because it cost so much, mo- that movie cost so much money to make and nobody liked it. Like, which is to me, like, well, it was, it was the one, two, three combo of, of New York, New York, Raging Bull and the King of Comedy, all which were mass, like massively produced, like big budgeted movies that just did not make any money. They were critically lauded, but, um, but I love the fact that it, it's really kind of turned around in a lot of people's estimation and esteem. And then also, I mean, like as much as I shit on Joker, which I like, that's something that you and I have talked about and I've talked privately with people. Um, as much as I, I shit on that movie, I have to give it credit for bringing to light this movie, King of Comedy, because it's a better movie all around. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, it's just a great, great movie. And I hope that people like after hearing this, will actually give it a chance and take a look at it. Um, what's your number four, Scott? My number four is Raging Bull. So, uh, <laughs> you know what's great is yeah. that that's my number fucking four too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it you know, it, first off, uh, just it being new territory for him for Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, black and white. I thought that was a great idea, and so to see him work in black and white. Uh, is is really nice, uh, and then a sports movie, you know. Yeah. And I can actually remember that I didn't see that movie, uh, for quite a while because I just didn't give a shit about boxing. Boxing <laughs> just was not. I mean, it just wasn't one of my things, you know. I mean, yeah. I grew up in the southeast. I was a you know football and baseball kid. And that's what I played and that's what interested me and boxing was fine, but I didn't know anything about boxing. It wasn't really popular where I was. And so I could always remember that it's kind of like, Oh yeah, that Robert De Niro boxing movie. Well, you know, I'll probably watch that at some point. And then when (laughs) I watched it, you realize it ain't really a boxing movie. You know I mean? It is, but it didn't, you know? Um, and it is really, you know, an interesting, it's an interesting bookend with King of Comedy, you know, and, and, and oddly, you would kind of think that maybe King of Comedy would have come first. Yeah. Because, because it's kind of this thing of, you know, King of Comedy is wanting the fame and thinking that you deserve the fame and all this. And then Raging Bull really takes you into what do you do after all that's gone? exactly like it's and so was so you know and so to me that's i mean hell it's a hell of a sports movie don't get me wrong i mean it's it's an amazingly well shot movie that captures the sport and everything and just you know these brutal blows and the sweat and the blood flying and he does a great job of capturing that world but to me you know it it comes down to jake lamotta punching that wall Yep. And, and, you know, fat Jake LaMotta, uh, walking through his restaurant, uh, wanting to talk about his glory days that really nobody else really wants to talk about. They just want to eat their meal. 
and uh and so it's 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 almost like after you've gotten those moments how fleeting they can be and what do you have left afterward if that's how you define yourself it's and it's so, subject matter for sure oh yeah yeah oh definitely oh yeah and and you you hit it right on the head i mean it is a like it's weird because it's not higher on my list because to be honest, like it is the, it is the movie that is about the worst piece of shit in the world. Like, like Jake LaMotta, like the way that Scorsese, like, it's really interesting to me that Scorsese was able to make this film and nobody be mad about it because I mean, Jake is an unrepentant, horrible person. Like <laughs> it's just, and then at the end of it, no, you're it's, right. It, it, like he doesn't like the the thing that I love about the movie is that he doesn't change. He like we see right. a movie yeah. we we watch this from like it's not birth to death but it's basically birth to death. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, which really that's doesn't interesting. work. He's he, he, it's a very good that's a very good way to to put it. Uh, he, he's alive but not really exactly. So exactly. in a way, it is a birth to death movie. Um, and but the thing is, is that. He never changes like like the like yep. he doesn't change at all. He is still like to me, it, it comes like the movie apexes at the at the Joey and Jake confrontation. Did you fuck my wife? Because yep. he it's not that he cares that his brother did something to him. It's not he doesn't care that Vicky is in as much emotional pain as she is in physical pain. It's not that he cares about his kids. All he fucking cares about in that moment, and you see it very clearly, is his fucking ego. And when he goes to prison, it's the breakdown isn't because of anything other than his ego. He is feeling sorry for himself. And the amazing part is, is that Scorsese is able to make this movie with Jake LaMotta as a... As a... Uh, as a like who was still alive at the time as a what what do they call them a consultant like he was a consultant he actually helped Scorsese make this movie and I think that it's because for me it's not higher on the list because I know that a lot of people love this movie I mean it got like um I think Sight and Sound called it the like like when they did their poll in the 1980s it was it like it's funny to me that the 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 top three movies of the 1980s when it was all said and done were raging bull blowout and once upon a time in America, the director's cut from sight and sound, right? Three, uh, three Italian filmmakers made the three top movies in the 1980s. And that's just, but like raging bull is one of those movies for me is it's all of the skill, the technique, the technical aspects of it that really rise it up to the cream of the crop. Could I watch it again? I watch it once every five or six years when they bring a new edition out. Like I'm waiting for the 4K because one thing that 4K does beautifully is reproduce 35 millimeter black and white. And like you said, to me, Michael Chapman's black and white photography in Raging Bull is probably the thing to watch Raging Bull for. Mm -hmm. You know, and and, and, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, it's but it's also it's weird because it starts the germ like it continues the germination of his 
his fascination with mafia because it started with Mean Streets and he and it goes to bed for a little bit and then it comes back in this movie. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how much like when you watch this movie, you go, wow, yeah, there's a lot of the whole tricks of the trade that he he ends up using in his mafia crime films. And there it's all there, like the families, the corrupt side of the boxing. It, it's it's his start of that kind of fuel to the fire that he would end up like, you know, ba- literally 10 years later, kind of making what I feel is is the epic gangster film of his career. In, in Goodfellas, and we'll talk about that probably a little bit later. But anything else about Raging Bull that you you kind of want to zero in on? You know, uh, maybe not anything specific to the film, mm-hmm. but it's kind of uh, incredible when you look at this filmography that if somebody didn't know the context of the discussion we were having, they could think that we were discussing putting it as the fourth best film period. <laughs> exactly really like of all time by anybody yeah and no. and we're just talking within the context of one person's work a filmmaker so, yes yeah uh, which is again it just just staggering like you think about it you see you like and you go wow that is and, and like i always i find it funny that we, we we both hit number four with raging bull but it seemed like when you look at scorsese's filmography it feels like the number four movie in his career like it will never be the top movie in his career uh, like it will always come in third or fourth with everybody when you really are honest with yourself about things right yeah um what did you have for your number three uh, it was the King of Comedy. Oh, so, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. The King of Comedy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that one. Uh, and, and you know, and I think it's also possibly, uh, not that I don't think that it doesn't merit being mm-hmm. the number three film on my list, uh, but it was my first Scorsese in a theater. And and so I think you just kind of have those, those memories and those feelings uh, where you can go back to remembering, encountering this voice uh, for the first time. And, uh, and so, uh, it, it, it sticks with you. It definitely does. It really, really does. Um, my number three is a bit of controversy for him, uh, which is, is, and it's actually like, I know this sounds weird, but it is actually my favorite of the genre, which is the last temptation of Christ. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so it's based off of like a, a lot of people probably don't know this, but um, the Last Temptation of Christ is actually based off of a novel, a very controversial novel, um, which became a very controversial film um, that tells the, the last days of Christ, but tells it from what is truly a ground level, a ground level telling of the Christ story. Um it's not done. I I can't even. It's something that somebody has to see in order to really understand its power. Um, it's not done in the traditional sense in the way that I think that a lot of people would think of a Christ story with English accents and high level and you know like what you what what you see in something like say Ben Hur like like it's not like that. It's it's done like a Scorsese, like gangster movie. It's done low level. I mean, you have 
Willem Dafoe as Jesus. You have Harvey Keitel as Judas. Uh, uh, Verna Bloom plays Mary. Barbara Hershey plays uh, Mary Magdalene. I mean, these are the people that he's he's casting in the film. And it's not like... It, it is about religion, but it's more about the man himself and what he ends up doing and what Christ as a figure had to deal with um, through his last days. Uh, it, it's it's a staggering piece of work for a man who was a devout Catholic for, uh, for a very long time. Um, Paul Schrader, uh, another another person that he's collaborated with for a very long time, uh, wrote the screenplay, uh, who, uh, Schrader himself was, was, um, what, um, you, uh, Scott, what was, uh, what was he before he went to, he went to USC? Um, the, um, he was a <laughs> I'm Dutch, blanking. I'm sorry. I said I'm blanking on what you're you're talking uh, he, about. He was devoutly religious. Um, a Quaker. He was a Dutch Quaker. Oh, 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 gotcha. He was a he was a Dutch Quaker before at 18 he left to um, pursue film film criticism. Uh, he saw I can't remember what movie he saw, but his his like both of these men who took their faith very seriously made this movie. This movie that does not feel like I mean I have to tell you guys it doesn't feel like. It's not like any religious film that you've ever seen. It's not even like I couldn't even call it a religious film because it's it's not about the religion. It's not about these markers. Right. It's about right. it's about this 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 human being. And I think that that's where a lot of people take umbrage with the film is that it it proposes that that Jesus is as much human as he is a god. Maybe mm -hmm. even more so. Um, and it also has this amazing, like what I don't think the I've like, I don't know if we've talked about this enough, but Scorsese's use of music in any film is amazing. But his score that he the score that he got from um, the, the score that he got from, uh, oh, gosh, what's his name? I can't even uh, Peter Gabriel is an amazing score that you could listen to on its own. And it's just this it's it's as much. A Peter Gabriel project as ever was formed. And it's just, it's, it's a staggering work. Um, I watch it every, uh, I watch it every Easter. Uh, this is the movie that I watch uh, on Easter because it, it means so much to me that I can't, like, I can't personally articulate it because a lot of, a lot of things that like I've, there's a lot of criticism towards religious entities in this film and he makes very salient points um and i just i i like i love it for very personal reasons um and i i don't think there's a, a more powerful christ movie um that's done in, like that's done in a style all of its own and doesn't feel self-important so yeah that's my number three I can uh, I can tell you that my my journey as a film critic began with that movie. Oh, really? But in but in a in a weird way, um, I 
grew up, of course, in the South, and mm-hmm. I don't know how evident that is in my voice. That probably says it all. But uh, uh, grew up in, in in Alabama. I went uh, kindergarten through twelfth grade uh, in uh, the city of Auburn, Alabama, and uh, then have lived now, I guess, twenty two years now in the state of Georgia. So I'm pretty much Southern through and through. And so Southern is, of course, uh, the land of uh, going to church uh, every Sunday, uh, maybe also on Wednesday nights. And uh, Baptist uh, is as big as, as a denomination. And so definitely heart of the Bible Belt. So uh, Last Temptation was coming out. And our local theater chain was refusing to show it. Oh, it was wow. the, the, yeah, it was the, the height of there. I mean, in, in some parts of the country, there was a boycott that it yes. was, that there were, you know, it was sacrilegious and, you know, blasphemous and terrible. And so I wrote my thing that was ever published in any way, shape or form outside of like a high school newspaper. Uh, I wrote a letter to our local newspaper saying, how could you possibly be boycotting or preventing the playing of something that you haven't even seen? And so I made this passionate plea for let the public decide (laughs) and basically said, you know, that you're, small-minded and ignorant and what have you. I'm, I wish I had a copy of it to this day. Uh, I could probably go into some archives somewhere and find it because it would have been around the time of the release of the film, obviously. And so my thesis statement was, show it. Show it and and then let people decide. If you show it and nobody comes and it bombs, then so be it. But First Amendment and freedom of expression, etc., you should at least offer this film uh, and and give people the opportunity to choose. And so, of course, uh, you know, I uh, was a, a horribly misguided uh, leftist. I don't know what as a result of that <laughs> uh, editorial. The, the film never played uh, my, my town growing up. Uh, I didn't catch up to it until later in life. Uh, probably the Criterion. Edi- there's, there's a Criterion edition of that, isn't there? Yes, there is. Yeah, okay, okay. I was going to say, I I was getting myself confused on my home video labels there for a minute, but it wouldn't (laughs) have been until that was available uh, that I saw it. Okay. And so, yeah, but but I I always remember that as, you know, uh, me trying to, you know, utilize the power of the press and uh, freedom of expression and all of that kind of stuff, but uh, in in what was then a small town uh, in the South, uh, that didn't go real well. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> Scott being a little <laughs> punk rock. That's not, that is, that is pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and like, just a final note, like I have to love any movie that makes Harvey Keitel, like a, a true New Yorker who could not change his accent to save his life. A, a Judas. Like just and to hear the lines, there's something a little cheeky about it. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'll be perfectly honest; it's very awesome. And then plus, um, if you guys didn't know, there's a great cameo by the amazing uh, David Bowie, who I miss every day. 
Like, I love David Bowie. And and anything that has David Bowie in it, and especially a cry story, I mean, are you kidding me? You gotta love it. Um, I think I know what your number two is, uh, but I'd love to hear. What's your number two? You know, I, I think I may actually surprise you with what my number two is. It's The Wolf of Wall Street. Whoa, uh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> okay, like, I didn't think we were going to talk about this because that's not even on my... Uh, uh, that's not even on my, my, my under underrated as it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, no, I, uh, I will tell you, I, I debate it's, it's funny and, and we'll get into this when we discuss, uh-huh. uh, the, 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 the new movie at hand. Uh, but, uh, I kind of intentionally didn't include the Irishman, in my top five because it's mm. just something that I feel like I need to digest more. Of course. And yeah. And so it's, it's just one of those things of, I thought we're going to do a segment, uh, on the Irishman. Uh, so my, my cheat will be, I don't have to figure out where I'm going to put the Irishman because we're going to talk about it anyway. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that the day will come, uh, as I've had a chance to see that movie a little bit more, uh, and, and process it a little bit more that perhaps, something though god help me what it would be would get bumped out of this list uh, <laughs> in place, uh of of the irishman but uh you know the wolf of wall street i mean i think that corporate greed and and the way that in my opinion i'm gonna get a little bit political here with this that that kind of scammers have taken over our country uh, is just such a huge topic. Mm-hmm. And and this movie does such a great job uh, of that topic. Uh, just the hedonism of it all. You know, it's like my joke with one of my Republican friends was, I said, well, you know, I certainly understand your capitalism argument. I mean, you know, I remember the days when making $250 million a year was a good living. You know, and... and, and, and it's you know, true. My, yeah, my point being that, you know, it's just, uh, I, I, to me, The Wolf of Wall Street uh, harkens back to another film that is literally in the title, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Yep, another great And when you movie. say, uh, when Charlie Sheen's character says to Gordon Gecko, how many yachts can you ski behind? That's, that's this movie. In this movie, uh, you asked that question, well, we will give you an answer in The Wolf of Wall Street. We will show you just how decadent uh, everything can get and just how out of control everything can get and, and how, you know, it's just never enough. You know, the, the profits have to be greater and greater and greater and greater. And if legally speaking, you can't get the profits to be greater and greater well, then we're just going to have to figure out a way around those regulations and a way around those laws and continue to bump up profits and set records and, you know, do whatever has to be done to scam people out of their money uh, because I can't make enough money lawfully uh, to live the lifestyle that I want to live. And, and but the, the, the other thing that the Wolf of Wall Street to me did was it goes back to that great sense of humor that is in Goodfellas. Yep. You know, Goodfellas has just this streak of dark humor running through it. And I remember going to a couple of screenings of Goodfellas when I was in uh, school and, and college 
and everything that I'm just sitting there howling with laughter and I'm the only person in the packed out theater that's laughing. So I guess, you know, I'm the only sick twist in there, uh, that was really, you know, enjoying all the dark humor in that movie. Uh, but the Wolf of Wall Street brings that back. You have that satirical bite, uh, in that movie, uh, where just some of it is just laugh out loud funny. And, and even, you know, like the Quaalude scene just yep. kills me. And, uh, and then of course we also have things like discoveries, like getting Margot Robbie in that movie mm-hmm. and, uh, and just, you know, what a, what a stroke of genius that was, uh, to cast her and then, uh, see where she's been since then. So, uh, so it, yeah. So I just, you know, when, when I think about it, when I, when I try to think of, of the way that things resonate with the times, like I said, taxi driver with the lone gunman idea, Mm -hmm. uh, the king of comedy with its, its quest for, you know, fame or infamy. Uh, and then this one just zeitgeist wise just really sticks with me, uh, because I think it is such a great, uh, distillation, of where our our country jumped the tracks and has just gone so out of control and really you know we haven't gotten back on the track since no we haven't and um what i i'll add to the wolf of wall street conversation because it's not on my list even though it like if we talked about defining movies of the 2010s i would definitely say that that would probably be my my biggest choice like of the last decade it would probably mm-hmm. be this because what i think that is lost what i the biggest thing i think is lost that terrence winter the screenwriter and um martin scorsese encapsulate is what a bunch of fucktard fuckwit assholes these guys are and how they ru- literally, through their own yeah. hubris, literally ruined our country. And yeah. the 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 very fact that Scorsese got arguably at the time the biggest movie star in the world to star in this movie is like even more so like a it's almost like a like like a like a punk rock middle finger to um to film in general and also to like the era that we are currently living through um i find it i i find it infinitely interesting how this the movie's message was really lost on a lot of the people that were sub 30 and how um like how it was like it was more of like they took it like like a rap song that it was like all this this shit was good and, but I mean, everybody else is mortified about it. Um, and I just find the way that the intent as opposed to what ended up happening is extremely interesting to me. So much so that like my number two um, kind of relates to that in a certain way. Um, it was your number five. It's my number two taxi driver. Which I will just say this much about Taxi Driver because I didn't really comment on it. Um, I saw it at a very young age, probably younger than I should have, because I literally the next movie after Goodfellas that I saw was Taxi Driver. And that movie, like, I mean, like you talked about how it blew your mind. It blew my mind, too. And and it also like I didn't understand why that movie was so 
reveiled by so many people. But then when you start to hear about the assassinations, the lone gunman, all of the stuff that it quote unquote inspired, it's one of those movies that it's like, it's, it's almost like the Joker nowadays, how people, there was so much of a pushback on the Joker, not because it was a bad movie or anything, but because it could incite violence. And the whole thing is, is that it really didn't, but fucking Taxi Driver had, has two, at least a minimum of two assassination, one attempt and one completion that it's name that it's, it, that hovers over it. The, the Reagan assassination attempt and then the John Lennon assassination. I mean, it's just, it's this, it, like, when you watch it, you first realize, wow, this could never be made now. But also, additionally, how vital this movie is. Like, it's still a very vital movie because it gets the pathology of the lone gunman correct. And that's what's scary. Just like the Wolf of Wall Street is so perceptive that it understands these junk bong fuckos and what they fucked around with. And how perceptive it is. Like, that's the one thing I feel like. And we're going to, like, I'm pretty sure that both of our number ones is the same. And we'll get into, like, the perception. Like, the one thing I feel, and maybe I'm wrong, is the one thing that I feel like Scorsese is, is doesn't get enough credit for is his, his ability to zero in on behavior and human nature better than I think any of his colleagues before or since. Like there's maybe Fincher, but Fincher specializes in such a zero, a zero dark, a zero sum game of just people who are damaged. Where Scorsese, like you look through his filmography and you just don't see damaged. You see healthy, you see, uh, you see funny, you see anything that you could possibly want from the spectrum of human nature. Uh, do you feel the same way or is it something? Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, no, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, so often when we talk about world building mm-hmm. in film, we're talking about like fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe horror, you know, building, you know, a mythology mm-hmm. and, and, and world building. But I think he does it better than just about anybody, but it's just the worlds that he, are, he is building are real. Yeah, it's it's a very sociological form of of filmmaking. It's like pulling back the curtain on a neighborhood uh, or a profession or an industry or whatever and showing us what's going on behind that curtain. Yep. And so uh, and, and he does it just so immersively, so realistically, so truthfully that that's the reason these things can resonate with you, even though they're way, way, way away from how you and I grew up. No, absolutely. You're a hundred percent right. It's, it's, it is, it's, it's very fascinating. Like to see that we could take a trip someplace and it being like in the hands and the guidance of Martin Scorsese and feel like you've, you know that world because of the way that he's shown it to you. And with that, why don't we talk about our number one, which I'm pretty sure is the same one, but I'll let you uh, say what your number one Scorsese is. Uh, it's Goodfellas. 
Yup. It had to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just, uh, I was 21 when it came out and it saw it at the theater yeah. uh, opening day. Uh, so, I mean, I was ready for it. And uh, there's a, a film critic in Atlanta who I've always loved uh, by the name of Eleanor Ringel. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor used to write for uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, one of the coolest things to ever happen to me is to get into the Georgia Film Critics Association and have my name be right above hers in the alphabetical listing uh, <laughs> of uh, of critics in Georgia, you know, me being P and her being R. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's still at it, still plugging away. Probably, I don't know, she's probably 10, 15 years older than I'm 10, 12 years older than I am, maybe. And uh, and so it was always a habit of mine. I've always been a movie nerd uh, that uh, I would go to class on Fridays and there was an Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, uh, newspaper dispenser there near my class. And so I would always carry however many quarters it was in my pocket to get the newspaper on Friday. And the main reason I got the newspaper on Friday was so that I could read all her reviews and kind of figure out what I thought I ought to see that weekend. And so, of course, you know, the front page of the arts and entertainment section was this spread on Goodfellas that she had just given a rave review. And it was already on my radar to, to go see it. And so, I mean, just as soon as afternoon classes were done, uh, I was headed to a two o'clock or a four o'clock or whatever it was. But I saw it that afternoon and, you know, it just it just broke my brain. I mean, it was just, it was just so amazing. It's, it is, uh, you know, there aren't to me that many perfect films out there, but it's definitely one of them. And, and to me, my definition of like a perfect film is just every department that was involved is firing on all cylinders. You know, from the cinematography to the editing to the needle drop music choices uh, to the performances to, you know, screenwriting. I mean, you name it. It's just the ultimate collaboration because, you know, I mean, it's a Scorsese film, but Lord knows, you know, and he would be the last person uh, to credit himself with everything. Uh, It's it's just surrounding yourself with all of those assistant coaches and having a game plan come together and just hitting it out of the park. And so see how many different sports analogies I can fit into one comparison. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, and it was just incredible. Matter of fact, it was so incredible, and I was so just kind of blown out by it uh, that I uh, basically uh, went out, got in my car, backed out of my parking space, didn't see that somebody else was backing out of their parking space, and had a fender bender in the parking lot of the movie theater right after the movie. Oh, crap. so <laughs> that that is even, definitely yeah. You <laughs> you know a film has like knocked you upside down if you get into a fucking accident. I mean, yeah, exa- yeah. exactly. So you know, and even that could not dampen my mood. I was still <laughs> you know flying high. Uh, when I got back that night and, you know, people were like, well, what'd you think of it? And I was just in such a great mood. And then they were like, where'd that big dent in the side of your car come from? And I was like, ah, that happened in the parking lot afterward, but who cares? That movie was amazing. And so, uh, uh, I probably went to see it. I don't know, maybe three times in theaters. I mean, I certainly, you know, those, those were the days where, 
you know, I sound like father time over here, but I'm just saying things have changed a lot mm-hmm. in the sense that movies stuck around, you know, even yeah. movies that didn't make a gajillion dollars stuck around. We didn't have, you know, six new releases hitting screens every weekend. And, you know, by the next weekend, three of them have disappeared and three of them hang around a little while longer. And so I probably saw it three times, but I saw it three times over a period of probably about six weeks. Uh, and so, uh, I just thought that, you know, it it was just amazing. I I think the other day, uh, when I responded to a tweet by another film critic who was kind of covering this type of ground, uh, in anticipation of the Irishman, Mm -hmm. uh, and I used the word gobsmacked and that was, you know, uh, that's a great way to put it. It just, you know, uh, slapped the taste out of my mouth as the expression goes. It just, uh, was so visceral and it was one of those things where it was just almost like you didn't realize a movie could do that yep. that was the groundbreaking aspect of it to me there was something just electrifying and kinetic and you know the the single uh take shot through the copacabana that's become so famous uh the you know how am i funny sequence uh, you know, having uh, having the meal uh, with the woman who actually is Martin Scorsese's mother uh, yep. while Billy Batts's body is in the trunk of their car. Uh, just so many sequences in that movie, the the literally looking like they're, you know, demons out of the pits of hell trying to bury a body in the, the red taillight wash. Uh, just so many moments in that movie that are just iconic that uh it just you know knocked me out you've you put more of a, a eloquent spin on it than i could have um it it is it's like the movie broke me in the best way possible when i was a kid because it was like the 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 two filmmakers that are so tied to me because of the time at which i saw them um and i was formulating my like you know m- in my head, like what I was going to be as a, as a film, film viewer is Scorsese and Tarantino, because around the time that I really got into Scorsese, Tarantino was coming up in the world. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the, the thing that, that really smacked me over the head was the storytelling, because when I saw when I saw Goodfellas, I mean, like we we were recounting, I was t- telling you it was the first thing that I ever saw of Scorsese. It like you know how like you were talking about how like it left you on a high. Um, for me, it was I saw this film, and it was on video. Of course, it was on VHS, and I I saw it like I watched it by myself. My mom and my sister did not want to see it, and that was fine. I mean, like they wouldn't have been into this. But it was a movie that I immediately rewound and watched again because <laughs> I, can, I can see that it's such it, like the thing that like I will never get over is the fact that the first thing I said to myself or I thought inside my head is I didn't know that you could tell movies the same way that you and your friends tell stories. And that's literally what it was, was that. When we were kids, I mean, like, you know, when I was a kid, 
you didn't have like, I mean, we didn't have text messages. We all got together and then we started talking about the different things that we did over, you know, the couple of weeks that we hadn't seen each other. Right. Or we hadn't gotten together. And invariably it was about like, you know, getting in trouble, your dad beating you up or, or like, you know, your dad smacking you upside the head because you did some stupid shit. But it was the way in which you talked about it with your friends with a lot of divergence that I'd never seen before in a movie. And Scorsese just crystallized that. And that's what kind of, for me, is the thing that ultimately is is the... I don't even know how to put it. It's this... It's, it's what Scorsese as a filmmaker is. Is like, he takes rules that he understands better than anybody else in the in the world of cinema. I mean, if you really think about it, he knows things better because of his almost entire psychopedic knowledge of film and film history. So if anybody's going to break a rule, it shouldn't be, pardon me calling somebody out, but it isn't going, it shouldn't, it really shouldn't be Joss Whedon or Zack Snyder. It really should be Martin Scorsese. And it's, it's just a film that every time you watch it, it is still as fresh, is still as violent and dirty and brilliant as it was the day that you saw it. I mean, like the, the thing that hits me the hardest every single time I watch it is two moments is the moment, you know, Jimmy Conway is going to kill every single son of a bitch that's in that bar. And then the preceding not playing Layla. But playing the uh, playing the solo, the second part of Layla, yeah, the coda, yeah, the coda of Layla, um, which I always find super ironic because Scorsese always works on thirty five layers, and if you know the story of Layla, the song and that coda, it makes it even funnier that in this weird ironic way that that Clampton wrote that for uh, for uh, for George Harrison's wife, he was in love with. And right. he turned this into a death march. He literally turned it into an assassination. He turned it into the complete opposite thing that it was. Which, at that moment when I saw it, like, that that became... like, And this is something that happens a lot with what I felt like was when I was discovering Scorsese was that song became one of my favorite songs of all time. And he just does that. It, like... Right. He, he just, I don't know, like, there's something magical about Goodfellas. Like, I was recently writing about, um, as a side note, I was, like, I think it was, I was talking to you off air, I was, I'm writing about Big Trouble in Little China, because of the Blu-ray release, and I was telling you I didn't know how the fuck to talk, like, to write a review about it, so what did I do is I wrote a review, like, I wrote about what made me love the film, which is not necessarily a review, but it's, like, there are certain films in my life that I cannot, I could never review. Like I could never review Goodfellas because it's a magic trick. It's in the ether. It's something lightning in a bottle. I think it's the best way possible to describe not just this film, but I think that like all of Scorsese films feel like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and it's amazing that you can come up with this list that we have come up with. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you said, do a list of your top 10 Scorsese moments, I could easily see where half to three fourths of them might not even come from these movies. Yep. 
You're absolutely you know, like, right. Like you're talking about the Layla moment. You know, I always think about the use of the stones. Can't you hear me knocking in Casino? Yes. Or you the know, 400 songs that he uses in Casino that make absolute sense. Like how do yep. you like or the like that moment or like if you talk like you could do an entire thing about Casino and it being and you would think that it would it's the greatest movie ever made. But it yep. still doesn't even make our top five. Right. You know? Um, yeah, no. Like, or the like the opening moment. The Saul Bass-inspired moment in Casino where he turns on the car, it blows up, and then it starts the, it starts the <laughs> opera music. And he's yep. flipping through neon. I mean, it's like, holy shit, dude. Like, you, like, you did that. And that's just a moment in your entire career. There's yep. some fucking filmmakers... A title sequence is their career. Right. But Scorsese has thousands of moments like this. Well, and I think you made a good point about Goodfellas breaking certain rules. And, you know, it's like, I mean, how often do you hear the, you know, show don't tell, Mm -hmm. you know, don't use a voiceover. If you're using a voiceover, you need to rework the you know, the screenplay so that the characters can deliver the information and not some narrator. And yet it's just perfect. It is. It just, you know, it, it just works perfectly. And so there are a lot of instances uh, in Goodfellas. You know, I mean, lots of people will tell you don't have that many characters. Mm-hmm. You know, you can hear almost like an old timey movie producer going, I don't get it. Who's who's the who's the main person? You know, who, who's the main character? Who's the star here? You know, we need some kind of separation uh, between the main guy and everybody else. And instead, you got all these people in all of these scenes and it's always different people and, and all this. You know, you can almost hear like old timey movie producers say, nope, 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 this is a mistake. Uh, you know, in, in the school of like, you know, I don't know, Cary Grant or, you know, Gregory Peck or or, yep. or those kind of things where, you know, you've got to have a definite individual who's kind of like your leading man. Mm-hmm. And and that movie is really kind of like a leading trio of performances. Absolutely. I mean, and, Pesci and Leota don't show up for 25 minutes in that movie. Yep. I mean, like De Niro, De Niro shows up 10 minutes in. But you don't know that he's going to he's you kind of get an idea that he's going to be the main character, like he's going to be a main character. I mean, like, yeah. And then just wild tonal shifts like the cocaine Mm -hmm. 80s should not work, but it does because that damn Harry Nielsen song that the like it's just it's such like I said, it's such a it's such a lightning like that movie is such lightning in a bottle that you cannot like when you try to describe you can accurately like review it but it doesn't it doesn't give you exactly what that movie is you know yep. oh and, it's and, very much like you know almost like alchemy it's almost yes. like some kind of mystical thing uh where you know everything came together and it turned into gold no absolutely absolutely and guys we're gonna stop right here we're gonna stop dead in our fucking tracks because we're going to bring you part two of this. Yes, it's going to be as long as The Irishman. I don't give a shit. Um, we're going to be back in a couple of days with part two where you're going to hear about our underrated Scorsese films because now my fucking list, it doesn't even make sense anymore. I have to go back and rethink about this because 
you know, we've been talking Scorsese and now it's kind of in the ether that I need to kind of like readjust this. Um, and then we're going to talk about the main topic, which is The Irishman, uh, the newest Scorsese film. And so we will be back um, in a few days. Uh, the next podcast will drop and then um, we're off and running, guys. Like This is not just the only filmmaker. Scott knows about at least one of the filmmakers that we're going to be talking about and uh, he's going to be joining us with and it's super exciting. Can't wait. Absolutely. And with that, we will be back next. Uh, we'll be back in another couple of days for you guys that are like picking up on the archive. Well, then just go to the next fucking episode and hear our underrated Scorsese and our discussion about the Irishman. So until next time, guys, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>